Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition, episode number 27 of the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast. My name is Jim, and joining me is renowned hitting instructor, professional evaluator, friend, co-host, former coach of mine, Jake Epstein. Jake, hello for the uh, 20th time <laughs> tonight. <laughs> we're in, man. We're going we're gonna to nail it this time. Yeah, storm, storm in Texas. I think it's knocking out all the... Uh, all the internet power, all the all the streaming audio and video technology that we've been using. Talk about a a bad week to have technical problems. We have you and I both have so much going on. You so you so more than me because of what's going on at the lab with um, 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 certification courses. But I mean, gosh, I mean, we we finally find some time to squeeze in episode number twenty seven and. <laughs> We've had about eight thousand startovers and redos, so <laughs> but it's yeah, working now. I know exactly what question you're going to ask me to start this thing off. So I'm yes. excited. I'm super prepped, ready to rock and roll. We, uh, yeah, we've done like eight dress rehearsals. <laughs> you know, go figure. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing. We we're supposed to talk about Sandy Alomar today. Sandy Alomar Senior, his birthday just passed, but we're sort of going to. It was on Monday, actually, and we're we're going to discuss a variety of things that pertain to hitting in this episode, and they get back to a singular topic um, coming up next week. But uh, there is something I want to bring to your attention, and, and Tony Gwynn said this, and it was um, it was something that. I thought was so uh, it was so relevant and it was so smart and Tony talked about how uh, important it is to know yourself as a hitter and it's great to know the strike zone but it's more important to actually know yourself as a hitter to be able to continue to progress as a hitter and I think so many times and I got into trouble with this when I was younger too you want to be something you're not everybody wants to now be a Cody Bellinger with that or you might have to be a Joey Wendell hit more gap to gap that's knowing yourself as a hitter and a lot of times I think younger hitters get in trouble with that you know you hear the the pitching coaches talk about it the whole you hear Smoltz talk about it all the time Mm -hmm. you have to go with your best you can't go with the hitter's worst sometimes. Sometimes you need to go with your best pitch as a pitcher and hope that your best pitch is better than that hitter. Mm-hmm. And I think as a hitter, we what Gwen is saying is absolutely true, and he was pretty good, so we should probably listen to what he says. <laughs> yeah. you, you do what you're – you know, what are you good at? What do you cover? We talk about knowing knowing ourselves, but – you know, what are we anticipating for? You know, if we handle the ball middle in, well, maybe with less than two strikes, we look for pitches middle in and we lay off anything middle away. Or if we're good breaking ball hitters, maybe we look for breaking balls until we have two strikes because we're better at that. And you can get away with that probably until, you know, through college, Mm -hmm. until really advanced scouting reports come in. You get to, you know, power five conferences and, yeah, they can break there, there's different softwares out there, synergy and different scouting reports that you can use to 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 figure out plans and what what players you know hit better. But pitchers still have to make that pitch. And if you're caught in between, if you're trying to cover everything, and then all of a sudden you get your pitch and you're a tick late because you're trying to cover everything, well, that's shame on you. You know, Gwen obviously was a better opposite field hitter. 
And if they threw him down the middle, he wasn't going to turn that and pull it into right center. He was going to shoot it into left field. He was really good at that. And if he got greedy, maybe he wasn't as good. Or maybe when they started throwing him inside and he started to cheat middle in, maybe he wasn't as good there. Even though he was looking for it and he was getting it, he still wasn't as good. But again, pitchers make mistakes. And maybe he's sitting there trying to cheat middle in and that pitch goes middle away, which is his bread and butter. But because he's cheating in, he misses his pitch. And that's the worst thing you can do as a hitter is miss your pitch because you're either out thinking yourself or you're trying to, you're trying to be too fine with your approach and just sticking what you're doing. Cause as a young kid, that's what you do. You know, I'm looking for fastballs. That's what my dad taught us when we were little look fast or slow, Mm -hmm. right? What do you got? Look fast or slow. Don't look in it now. You don't have to be that fine. So you're looking fast or slow and then you're super aggressive on that pitch. And then all of a sudden, sometimes we get older and we start to think a little bit too much. Oh, he might do this or he might do that. And then all of a sudden we're caught in between. Uh, I'm watching the the Rays and the Dodgers and watching Walker Bueller throughout the postseason. And you talked about your dad right there telling you when you were younger, go after the fastball early. And it seems like a lot of hitters in the postseason facing Walker Bueller are struggling a lot. And a big reason for that I've noticed is because maybe they're not they're taking and being too passive with that first pitch fastball and Walker Bueller sort of giving them something to hit early in counts. And then when he mixes in that breaking stuff, it's hard for guys to really get into rhythm at the plate or get comfortable with him when, when he's on the mound. Uh, I, I think a lot of hitters maybe in today's world are doing just that where they're kind of letting first pitch fastballs go by and, they're, they're getting themselves into inauspicious situations that they can't recover from against really good pitchers. It's, it's, uh, you know, and, and there's different philosophies on this. I remember my dad telling me at a young age that, you, you know, he, there was that big list, you know, all the people Nolan Ryan struck out, right. <laughs> it was in sports illustrated. I don't know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And sure, my dad's name was in there, but my dad said, you know what? I had decent success against Nolan, and they actually became teammates. And my dad, I think, was a first baseman in a few of his no-hitters. Um, and so he, you know, he obviously had a front-row seat when Nolan Ryan was, was on. And he said, you can't let those guys get ahead because they're going to put you away. Mm-hmm. And if you have to swing early in the count, if you're not comfortable swinging early in the count, you got to make yourself comfortable swinging early in the count. So – I was, when I was at, at Mizzou and I just took over, right? So I didn't, I didn't know the guys that well and the season was just starting and, mm-hmm. um, and they were driving me crazy because we were, we were missing good, we were getting deep in counts. Um, I shouldn't say that. We were getting behind early mm-hmm. and I kept trying to press the issue of, look, we're striking out 10, 11 times a game against oh. mediocre pitching how do you not strike out as much? Well, you don't let the pitcher get to two strikes. And I had a really good, you know, quick conversation with coach Schneider here at Texas A&M. He's a softball coach. And we were both watching the game. It was kind of late at night. We were texting each other. And I pretty much said, like, you, you can't let a guy get ahead. You can't get to two strikes off guys that are strikeout pitchers. And he said, absolutely. And then he said something else, which I thought was great. He says, strikeout pitchers are trying to get ahead early. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Bueller's trying to do. And I understand that you go in there and you swing at the first pitch and maybe you pop it up or you ground it out and you feel like you wasted the at-bat, but, you know, maybe you didn't. What if you would have squared that up and hit a double? 
Yeah. You're certainly not squaring up and hitting a double when you have two strikes on you. So you have to have, you know, you have to have the right coaching staff around you to allow players to do that. Mm-hmm. Some coaching staffs, you know, if, uh, and I have no idea, but say, you know, Dave Roberts is a guy that wants, and I don't think this is as prevalent anymore because pitchers don't, they don't throw nine innings. They don't throw seven innings for crying out loud. They throw yeah. pitches and they get out of there. So it's not like you're trying to, you know, wear a guy down. They're just going to bring a fresh arm in anyway. But, you know, he might be a guy that that's like, hey, you got to get – I want my guys to get deep in the count. I want to see pitches. I want to get the starting pitchers pitch count up, right? Mm-hmm. But then you have a hitting coach that's like, look, you guys need to be aggressive early in the count. Don't get to two strikes. Well, now you have conflicting arguments between what the head coach wants and what his assistants want and what the players are doing. And, you know, sometimes that creates kind of a weird scenario. So everybody has to be on the same page. You know, you have to, as, as a hitting coach, you have to go to your manager and say, look, this is our plan. I've discussed it with the players. We're all on board to do this. You know, I'm hoping that you're on board to do this because you're the captain of this ship. And um, if a manager believes in his coaches and he's a good uh, communicator and he's a good leader, then he's going to trust his coaches to do the right thing. And then those coaches are going to trust their players to do the right thing. So let, let me, let me ask you, and we've discussed this on the podcast before you have two at bats say against maybe a Walker Bueller, depending on, on how a manager or an analytics staff or just a coaching staff in general goes about it to get comfortable against a guy like that. But then there's a new guy that comes in and obviously you have scouting reports and, and iPads and now video that you can watch that has progressed in the last 10 years. But how do hitters get comfortable with the new strategy of pitchers going five innings as a starter, five to six innings, unless you're uh, an established veteran and then a new guy coming in and then a new guy coming in after that and then a new guy coming in after that. It's almost like as a hitter, before a three-game series, same thing with college two before a three-game series, weekend series, you're almost cramming for a test uh, for a one day, almost cramming for a one day test against all these pitchers that you may have to face. Yeah. And college is somewhat different because you, you, <laughs> you know, I remember doing a scouting report for Vanderbilt, you know, and it was, I'm looking at video of these guys. I'm looking at their pitch shapes. I'm looking at their velocities. I'm looking at their track man data. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, God, the, who are these guys? They, they are unbelievable. These lefties come out of the bullpen are nastier than the starters, and they're yeah. just grooming them to be starters you know, the following year. Mm-hmm. But when push comes to slup, shove, it's like the same three guys out of the bullpen for every school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless, you're, you know, unless you're beating the heck out of them or they're beating the heck out of you, it's the same three guys out of the pen. You have the same starters, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you got – the same three guys out of the pen and maybe a left-handed specialist that, that may come in. So everybody sticks with their horses, you know, at the college level, you know, nobody's going to give people too much rope because their jobs are at stake. But um, at the big league level, I think hitters, they do, they, you know, and you'll see them go check reports right before a guy comes in and before their game, they're going to look at video of, of who's on the, you know, who's on the staff, how they've pitched you in the past and you know what? Sometimes too much information is, is too much information and everybody's different. We've talked about that in the past, that some guys want information and some guys don't. Yeah. And you'll know, I, I think it was Will Smith or somebody I saw, they brought in a picture and he went straight to an iPad or straight to a book, mm-hmm. you know, that was laying on the bench and was looking at, at something that, you know, was him trying to get an advantage of how this guy had pitched him in the past. You know, the cool part about, major league baseball is you face these guys so much 
You know, right. you don't face him once a year. Yeah. Especially in a seven game series. It's like, you're, you're going to face the same guy there. He's going to come in and pitch against you, you know, late in the game, you're going to have your matchups and this is your matchup and you're going to remember what he's like the day before. And it does that part of it makes it a little bit, a little bit easier, but yeah, you, you do have to study. You have to know what guys do, but you know what, when it comes down to it, you, you gotta, you gotta hit. You know, you, you have to be able to trust your instincts and your vision and your athleticism and all the hard work you put in to be able to go out there and just swing the bat and find a barrel. And that's what the old timers used to do. I mean, there was no secret about it. There was no crazy video you could break down or release points or spin rates. Yeah. And they still survived. You yeah. know, they were, able, they were able to get through 162 games. So I think different brains can, can allow for a lot of stimulus and a lot of information. And I think a lot of guys don't, I think that's the beauty of the game is that hitters are all different and personalities are all different and how they go about their business is all different, but they have one goal and that's to win. You know, there was a safety squeeze tonight. You know, we're taping this what on, on Friday. Mm -hmm. I mean, how great is that? Like you never see a safety squeeze in professional baseball to squeeze out that extra run. And that's debilitating to an opposition. You're already down. I think they did it when they were up four. Yeah. yeah, they're already down four runs and all of a sudden somebody throws a push bun out there, a safety squeeze, and it's like, oh, there's just another run. They're just, they're beating, that's like death by a thousand cuts, you know, when, when something like that happens to finish off an inning. And I don't know, I think that's, you have to have the right players to be able to do that. I think that's why the Dodgers are, are um, I mean, they have a huge payroll and whatnot, but they also have a lot of homegrown talent and they also have a payroll where they're paying like three guys, a ton of money that makes up most of their payroll, but they really do play as a team. You know, even though you have guys with, with big money, like Betts is making a ton of money. I mean, that guy looks like the greatest teammate, you know, and he plays his heart out and he prepares more than anybody else in the game that that's what you want to have. And, and, Mm -hmm. and to have somebody, you know, push bunt for a sacrifice in the world series and feel good about it. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And again, today for the audience, we're just talking about a a variety of topics uh, tonight, uh, today, this morning, (laughs) this afternoon, whenever you may be listening. We're actually on the other side of the continent. Yes. Yes. Well, we have listeners in all different countries. Mm-hmm. But speaking about the World Series, we're, we're getting a chance to see two teams, the Dodgers, the, the Rays, that do things the right way. And I, I understand the Dodgers have been disappointing in the postseason the last couple of years, but they continue to churn out player after player after player and player development. And the Rays have put together somewhat uh, something that is so astounding to me that they're able with the limited payroll, they're able to, that they're able to put on the guys on the field that can help them win every single year. The little things that they find in players that they think is going to help their ball club is tremendous. And that starts with Andrew Friedman or it started with Andrew Friedman before he went to the Dodgers. Um, What do you feel uh, that the, the Rays do so well, I guess from an offensive standpoint as to why they're able to continually churn out different types of players and find these guys, find that little thing. Maybe I'm answering my own question, but find that little thing that can help them at the major league level continue to win every year. That's what they do. They, they, you know, they, they, they find more people that are, released or non-tendered yeah yeah uh, or player to be named later than i think any other club any other organization out there so they they find something i I was reading something about a player he was a relief pitcher that the phillies uh released Mm -hmm. and they liked him two or three years ago 
Yeah. There was something in there and he went out and had a bad year with the Phillies last year. And the Phillies said, all right, take a hike. And they swooped in and picked him up for, you know, $300,000. And he's one of their best pitchers out of the bullpen. And I think they have a knack and some people have a knack for that. You know, they see certain things. There was something else I read about, uh, Oh, who was that? Was it, uh, it was Melvin, the, the old general manager for the Brewers when Betts was an A-ball, he was the first one to say, to inquire about him, like, mm, I'd like to have this guy. You know, he was on anybody's radar, but he saw him. And there was something about him that that just said, I, I need to have this guy. And obviously it didn't work out where he ended up going to Milwaukee. He went, you know, he stayed with the Red Sox. But yeah. th- those are the kind of things. There's there's people that, that have certain insights. You know, they see certain things or they see certain numbers that obviously aren't replicated or everybody would be doing it, right? right. But the, 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 the Rays have their guys, their close-knit group of guys that come together and make these decisions, and they make them the right way. I mean, look, who'd they have? What was it? Avicel Garcia last year mm-hmm. trying to think. I mean, they had guys that had – that had fam, they had fam last year, right? That had really big years and maybe didn't quite have such great years this year. You know, why is that? Is it the culture? Is it I was going to say, is it the baseball systems that they have in place? I mean, what is it? I, I, that's what I'm trying to figure out because the Rays have provided a template for everybody across baseball as to how to really do things successfully and save money. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I can tell you from a college standpoint, when I went from Mizzou to Cal State Fullerton, it was, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Fullerton gets the athletes now, right? you know, that, then sure. they did, but now, I mean, they still get the same athletes, but they're scrappy and they have this chip on their shoulder when they go play UCLA or USC or, yeah. or Cal or, you know, any of the big West Stanford, the West Coast schools, Arizona State that look, we're the underdogs. We don't have any money. We change our clothes in the parking lot. You can kiss our rear ends. We're going to shove this ball. And that's just the mindset. And that's, you know, that's just the Titan way. Like that's the way it was bred when I was there. It's still the same way now that people have that chip on their shoulder. And I think the Rays are kind of like that. Like you're, you're the Rays and you're in the AL East with Boston and New York. And you don't care who you are. You're going to battle those guys. And, and you're, you, you know, everybody's, you know, kind of <laughs> chipping away at you and yeah. making fun of you. And the fact you don't have any fans, you play in a terrible ballpark and, and you show up to play because there's nothing better than upsetting, you know, those guys that have a payroll that's three times the size of yours. And that's got to be some part of the culture that is instilled there, uh, whether it's, you know, the management, whether it's the, the field staff. Um, or it's just ingrained, you know, from the players that come up through the system. Yeah, I, you know, you hear some some things about teams sometimes that they when they're rebuilding, they're going through that rebuilding stage that they don't have the proper systems in place, or they haven't gotten them in place yet to make them successful to help their players develop. I don't know, man. The Rays just provide that template every year, and I don't. They went from the laughing stock, I guess, of the AL East to a real force that you know every year, hey, they may not win the World Series every year. They may not make it to the ALCS, but you can't ever count them out. I mean, that's that's what 
it's kind of what the Dodgers have become as well. You can never count them out. They're, the Rays are just one of those rare teams, I think, in, in all of sports. The Spurs are kind of like that in basketball, where they may not have on paper the greatest uh, team assembled, but you can't completely count them out pre, pre-season every year because you just never know. You know that there's something there that's going to help propel them to at least 85 wins, at least which isn't enough usually to make it make the postseason in the American league, but nonetheless. Yeah. I, I think they, there's something there. I, I mean, I wish I w- I'm sure there's a lot of people that wish they knew too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's I don't, I, a lot yeah. of people in the Northeast. Yeah. Well, so what, what do you feel their hitters do so well at, coming up through the minor league system? I mean, Wendell's one of those guys, Kevin Kiermeyer, uh, another guy who's come up through their system. I know they get players, but from what you see from guys coming up, what do they do so well offensively? I think they grind. I mean, those two guys are grinders. They're flat swingers. They're not going to strike out a ton. Yeah. They're not trying to hit jacks. You know, it's a different mindset with that team. I would say, or at least those players. And again, I, I haven't watched a ton. Like even, you know, I watch, uh, you know, G-Man, he's a big guy, but he hits really low line drives all over the place. You know, hits low line drives up the middle. He's not a high launch angle guy. Mm-hmm. I would say low is, and that's why he's going to have big peaks and valleys with his swing, you know, based on his swing and, you know, his early barreled up. If he doesn't time it up, he's going to, you know, he ran into a couple the other night, but it's just not a swing that's going to, I know he had a good year, but it's not, it's not a consistent swing over 162 games. You know, he just happened to be hot for most of this 60 game season. So, um, you know, hopefully he he gets hot again. Um, I'm trying to think of of other guys. And I, I don't know. I feel like they're just hitters. They're they almost remind you more of minor league hitters that are just trying to get hits. And if they don't get hits, they know they're not going to play. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean? Like <laughs> they're going to run somebody else out there and they're going to be out of a job. Yeah. And maybe that's what, that's what's so great about the, the organization is, Hey, if I can make it in Tampa Bay and do well, then I can go make money somewhere else. You know, I'm, I'm not going to make it here, but at least they're going to give me an opportunity to play. If I make the most of it, maybe I'll get a two or three or four year deal somewhere else and, and really cash in and make some money. So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's a, it's a, it's a development issue because there's very different swings from all these players. And these players are really from all over the place. You know, they're not a lot of draft, you know, the, the raise are all these guys aren't raised draft picks, you know, that, that come in here or international signees, they've gone through other organizations and they've ended up here. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're like a foster home. You know, all these kids have been kicked out of their original homes yeah. and they get a second chance and they're trying to make the most of it. Yeah, like the um, island of misfits, if you will. That's what it is. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's really something. Uh, Sandy Alomar Sr.'s birthday just passed uh, this week. We're going to do a topic on him, but we've sort of switched it up this week. Uh, I, I want to ask you, he played, he played during your dad's era and I was looking over some of his numbers. He was, he, he was a, an all-star just once. I don't think he ever hit over 260 looking at some of his numbers in episode prep today. Um, what do you remember about him? What kind of hitter? Are you kind of playing the dead ball era? And, and I, I'm putting you on the spot here asking you what kind of hitter he was. We kind of can gauge what kind of hitter he was based off his numbers and statistics. Uh, and he's more so, I think, known for his coaching ability now. Sandy Alomar Jr., I think, was the better player. But what kind of impact do you think that Sandy Alomar Sr. had in his career to the game of baseball in general? I think it was knowledge. You know, it was a, it was a Latin American. It was a Spanish-speaking, you know, player that played 
for it wasn't easy, you know, being yeah. a Latin player. I mean, you're, you're you don't even speak the same language. You know, yeah. it was very different then than it than it is now. When you know you, you go through the Dominican academies, they they teach you some English, they teach you some life skills. You're around it. Yeah, yeah. You know, these guys all of a sudden just kind of get in, thrown in, and it's like uh, you can't even. You know, they couldn't communicate. So he was such a great translator or communicator between you know people that could speak English and his his Spanish speaking you know uh, teammates, but. Yeah, I mean, he was, uh, he hit 13 home runs in his entire career. I mean, how many seasons did he play? Did he play 13 seasons? I think he, yeah, might have played a little bit, a little bit more, but right around that time. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I'll never forget, I met, uh, you've heard of the Mendoza line, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, 200. I met Mario Mendoza. He was a coach when I was in the Angels organization. It was like meeting a legend. A guy yeah. that, you know, never hit 200, always hovered, hovered right around 195 to 205. So, you know, it, it's kind of cool because there were places for those guys then because they could really pick it, you know, and they were really valuable to a team. Um, and Alomar was a guy that played so many different positions, right? He played the infield. He played the outfield. Um, yeah. I don't think he caught. That's probably why his son caught. Um, but, yeah, I just think he was probably an all – he was probably a great teammate, you know, I mean – career 245 hitter with no power he must have been a great teammate you know he must have been a defensive specialist and a good guy to have in the clubhouse and he made a pretty good career out of it and then turned into a you know a a manager for quite some time yeah yeah I I did get a chance to meet Sandy Alomar senior by the way uh as a roving instructor and uh yeah he's he's tremendous absolutely tremendous um but no I you know I brought him up because the he played in the dead ball era and I, I don't know his swing was so much different but how why was it and I wanted, was wondering this today why was it that his son was so much of a better hitter and hit more and had hitting style that was more conducive to his time and to what hitting is now rather than how his dad hit I don't, I don't understand how it didn't get passed along I, I did did he just learn on his own Sandy Alomar Jr. because I don't know if he learned as much about hitting than he from his dad than he did fielding. No, I don't, I don't think so. Well, how about his brother? How about uh, Roberto Alomar? Right. I mean, that right. That would be a hall of famer. Right. So it's yeah. like, I think Sandy Alomar senior should be best known for having uh, really good genetics or okay. maybe his wife had really good genetics. You know, yeah. maybe that's what it is, but maybe, I yeah. mean, you produce two pretty amazing players and I, I, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong here, but I, I'm pretty sure that he probably wasn't a hitting guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he probably wasn't a super knowledgeable. You know what? He created a great environment for his kids. Yeah. You know, it's probably followed him all over the, you know, when he was coaching and when he was playing, they were in the clubhouse all the time and they were, you know, constantly seeing how, you know, dad did it and how these professionals went in and, and did their job day in and day out. And there's obviously something to that when you look at all the big league sons that, you know, follow in their dad's footsteps. I remember my dad saying, yeah, what do you think? Barry Bonds, do you think he was nervous when he got to the big leagues? No, he hung out with his dad for every single. You think Ken Griffey Jr. was nervous when he got to the big leagues? Yeah. No, he, was, yeah. he was around it his whole life. And I think that that was probably the case for, you know, for all the the the, the two sons, you know, for Roberto and Sandy. I don't know if he had any other sons. Uh, maybe he had a daughter that was, you know, some kind of like Olympic pole vaulter or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I know, I, you know, it, that's that wisdom part that we've talked about so many times on, on the show, having that 
that wisdom for for kids growing up in clubhouses it's so vital it really is i mean it, it you look how quickly that some players develop at the major league level nowadays when they had fathers who were big leaguers and it, it it's it's so vitally important it really is I, and i think it's that's why i'm, I'm also for um drafting I have my own little draft strategy, but I'm also for drafting kids of, of former big leaguers because I think that the learning curve is a lot less steep. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and there's so much money involved nowadays, too, that I don't, I don't want to draft somebody and have to, and have to wait so long for them to develop because there is so much money involved, you know, mm-hmm. Does that, if that makes sense. If if you could take one risk out of the equation, yeah, it makes that decision for spending a lot of money on a on a signee or a draftable player mm-hmm. that much easier. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Speaking now that we're on the draft subject here, mm-hmm. would you are you for drafting hitters who play at big time colleges who are twenty one, twenty two juniors, whatever, over a high school hitter? Or would you, or do you prefer the high school hitter? And again, I'm not giving much context to this, but mm-hmm. I was thinking about this earlier in the week. Would you want to draft a hitter who's a high school player, try to develop him over three, whatever, four years, or would you rather have the college hitter? I know who I'd rather have, and that would be the college hitter, and I'd rather have the high school pitcher at the higher rounds. I'm not. I don't certainly see. And again, you can email us at jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com with your criticisms of this. But I don't see a high school kid getting drafted past the third round, maybe past the fourth round. I'll say I'll be liberal about that. That has as much value. And I think his value just skyrockets because I think it's a shock to the whole system when you're 18 years old coming off coming out of high school and you play professional baseball. And it's not as much as a shock to the system for kids who are in college and college hitters who've been through a lot more and you've been at you've been you've coached at the college level as well so that's why I want to pepper that question to you that's a it's a good question it's a tough question I mean I know what you're saying you know after the fourth round are there position players you know that are that are good enough you know are are they are they middle infielders right do they run Mm-hmm. Do they throw? Are there are there other things there? I mean, if if we're taking say say we're taking a third baseman, I guess that's probably a good you know an offensive third baseman, somebody like that. Mm-hmm. If they're gonna if they played in in the SEC mm-hmm. and they put up 15 home runs in the SEC and they hit you know over 300, then I would say there's limited risk to that because yes. that's a very dominant player in the SEC. I had this conversation with a a player of mine, you know, who's probably had a chance to play in a, in a power five school, but probably is more of like a, you know, smaller, you know, division one, but smart. And I'm like, well, do you want to go out and get your lunch handed to you every week with 95 miles an hour? Or do you want to go hit some bombs, you know, in the, in the, in this, the, whatever mid Atlantic conference or the, you know, yeah. Southwood conference or something like that. And, and that's something too, you know, you, you have a lot of guys that put up huge numbers in these other conferences and they don't, they don't go anywhere because they're not facing that, that competition. And you could go and do pretty well in the sec and hit 275 and hit 10 home runs and you play a little defense. You're going to go somewhere because they know those pitchers. 
I don't know how many how many pitchers from the SEC were first rounders this year. There, oh, yeah. AC, there was two guys at Georgia. I'm trying to think, was there a guy at Mississippi State too? Uh, you know, so I mean, there's just so many arms out there, and this was a short season at that. So. You know, and then you have college guys that you look at, oh, what's his name, Fairbanks, right? He's a Mizzou guy, he pitches for Tampa Bay. I think he's had two Tommy John, maybe three Tommy Johns, you know? And it's like, you know, he had one in high school, had one in college. Like, what? He's throwing 100 miles an hour right now. So if you get him early, if you would have got him at 18, would that have been different than if he would have gone to college? So to answer your question, I have no answer because I would have to – I would have to see that player. Um, I would love to take a really elite high school athlete and hitter and have him for three years in a minor league system where all he's worrying about is playing and nutrition and defense. And there's no limits on how many at bats he can get, how many hours he can spend at practice, how many, you know, yeah, how many classes he might miss due to like, I think it's a much easier journey for, for that kid, but I think you're right. I think you're talking maybe top three rounders um, would be it. Anybody beyond that isn't going to get paid enough, and so they're probably not going to give them enough attention in the minor league system that somebody at a D1 program would have. Because you're going to have guys that oh, would probably be a 10th rounder, but if they go to a D1 program, they're going to be a dude, and they're going to get taken care of, and they're going to go through that nutrition and get bigger and stronger. So. I think there's less risk for a position player going to college because of injury wise. They're all they're going to do is get, you know, fundamentals. They're going to get a lot of ground balls, but they're going to get, you know, good nutrition and they're going to have a good weight program where I think sometimes you, you risk that as a pitcher and going and doing that same weight program. Is that going to, are you going to blow your arm out? You know, is it going to, that's what I worry about. And I think with pitchers for me personally, uh, this has always been the case for me with pitchers, there's a lot of mileage. You've seen this firsthand. There's a lot of mileage on pitchers coming out of college. Those coaches care about winning first. They don't care about what the organizations at the next level or scouts may want. That's why I say I'm all for. I don't like the, the, the athletics a few years ago. Actually, well, it was just recent. So two years ago or so, drafted a bunch of pitchers that came from college. And I said, Ugh, I don't know about that. Now, look, that's their draft strategy. Fine. But I'm just not for drafting a, a lot of pitchers that come from the college level and higher rounds based off the mileage they've accumulated on their, on their bodies and in their arms. It, it happens. Uh, yeah. But then you have a lot of guys that are in the big leagues in a year. Yeah. You know, and maybe that's the key. You get them, you get their service time up because you know that arm's going to, excuse me, that arm's going to blow, it's going to yeah. blow out at some point. Yeah. It's kind of how it is, right? What is it every, what is it? Six years between surgeries, right? Tommy John, right? So if you, you know, if you get them up there and you get two or three years out of them and then they do a year of rehab and reconstruction, then you got another six, you know? So it's like, when is that going to happen? Is it going to happen when they're 24? Is it going to happen when they're 20? Is it going to happen when they're 30? But right. It, it ha- I mean, it happens. Uh, that would be a cool episode. And I'm not a pitching guy, so I just talk to a lot of pitching guys, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what they tell me. Like, it's pretty much expected, you know, nowadays that it's, it's going to blow. And it's can you time it right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, can, can you oh, blow it the, at the right time? Can you get a couple years service, then blow it, then yeah. come back, have another year or two, and then become a free agent and still have three or four years left of that elbow? And um, 
like I said, that'd be a cool little research project. Maybe one of our one of our young listeners can put together the the staffs from different organizations and how many times they've had surgery and what age they had surgery. Yeah, I and then email it to us at jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. And then while you're at it, just subscribe to the podcast and like for new episodes and, and like us on social media and all that good stuff too. So that's part that's of the exactly, research. That was a great transition. That's, that's part of the research project. <laughs> exactly right. I'll put Next my week. kids. My kids will do it. You think so? Yeah, I give them. I give, well, no, one of my kids will. I, I, I give my little one a, a project. She'll get after it. How, she likes to research. She likes to research. Yeah. Maybe she'll be so. so I'm curious. I Maybe mean, if she, we would have told her we were going to talk about Sandy Alomar, she probably would have put it all together. You think so? Yeah, for sure. So, we, oh, geez, well, we should just have her do the episode prep every week and hand it off to us. Yeah. It'd be we like her, put her on the pod, podcast. It'd be like a, like her internship, early internship. Yeah, she'd be into <laughs> that. If you call it an internship, she'll do anything. You can even give her fake credits for something. Fake credits? I don't yeah, want to like do that. Fake money. They like the kids in elementary school. They like fake money. Here's fake money. Oh, really? That sounds great. What? Yeah. Oh my God! What are they the teaching best. in schools nowadays? I know. You want some fake money? Monopoly money? Yeah, it's like fake money. You can go buy stuff in the treasure chest. It's like the dentist. Hey, you you earned you earned fake money. Oh, you were good today. Here's a couple fake bucks. And what and then at the end, you can buy something. You have like a thousand fake dollars. You can buy like two. You know, like chicken nuggets at Chick Fil A. Oh, that's the best you got, huh? That's you love about, it. I hate Chick. I, I know how much you like Chick Fil A. If they ever sponsor the podcast, then we're screwed. Then I'll love them. But I'm not a big Chick Fil A guy. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't like. So that's what we're teaching kids in schools nowadays: just fake money, and we're not teaching them anything about economics or. I mean, it's elementary school. No, they use money to count and to barter and to buy things. It's just not real money. Oh, yeah. All right. So they have to earn it. Then they have to use that money to buy something they want. And then once they buy something they want, they can actually trade that with other people. And then they try to figure out the value. Was that a good trade or not? Hmm. There's actually some pretty good skills in there. I I, I do kind of like that. Yeah. Very good. All right. What grade? Uh, that's fifth grade, but they, they did that, I think in last year or the year before third or fourth. Jake's a very good parent for those listening, by the way, he's really in tune with what his, his, uh, daughters are doing. Some parents aren't, aren't in tune nowadays with what their kids are doing in school. My God. Um, you know, I saw a tweet earlier this week from somebody that I follow on Twitter, a former scout, and he talked about hitters getting sinking into their legs when they're hitting at the major league level and he showed pictures of it, which I, and I, I kind of liked what he was, what he was, um, what he was talking about there. Uh, do you agree with that theory sinking into legs into your legs as a hitter? We probably say that about 70 times a day at the lab. Okay. <laughs> We've never said it on this podcast, which is yeah, which I'm surprised at. Yeah, sinking into Not the yet. legs is really important. That's like the first step to building ground force. Mm-hmm. Um, plus it helps us get to low pitches so that we don't have to manipulate our hands quite as much. So mm-hmm. yeah, getting in the legs is, is really important. It's really important in the load early, but most important at, at heel plant. When we, when we land, we can get into our legs, we can keep our hands back and we can make really good adjustments from there. Mm-hmm. So what's the easiest way to go about sinking into the legs? Um, I mean, it sounds easy, it but does sound easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. 
If you want to show up at the lab tomorrow at 9.30 a.m. Central Time for certification training, we'll be going over sinking into the legs and depth. I'll be there. Um, no, I mean, just a, a really, there's different ways to do it. And you have to be careful which way to do it because you could end up getting too much weight forward. But mm -hmm. one of the easy ways, things that I tell kids to do is to pretend no matter where they start, if they start like Bellinger, that's fine. If they start, you know, like uh, whatever, somebody... Uh, I'm thinking of a crouch guy. Who's a crouch guy? Wendell, is he a crouch guy? I don't Wendell, know. a little bit. Crouch, right? When you stride, I tell them you're stepping into a short room, you know, mm -hmm. a room that has a short ceiling. And if you start to get up or you push off the ground, you'll hit your head on the ceiling. So you got to make sure you stride and get under that ceiling so you don't um, hit your head. And in doing so, what players will do is a lot of times they'll bend both legs Mm -hmm. all the way through the swing. So then we tell them, look, you got to get under the ceiling, but you still got to be able to push back and brace that front leg and block that thing out. Mm -hmm. So the only way to do that is to sink into the back leg. The back leg has to receive more of that. Yeah. So in, in turn, it's you're stepping and sinking really into the back leg, but you have to make sure you do it with a weight shift because if you don't do it with a weight shift, then you'll, you'll collapse your backside. So it's a risky thing, but once kids learn how to do it, they just have to be reminded of it because they get lazy, especially in BP or especially when you see them off a tee. Um, I'll tell you that all the Latin players that I'm that that I do the scouting work for, none of them get in their legs in batting practice. None. They're all very upright. It's just the way it is, right? They're just finding barrels and hitting line drives, and maybe the last couple swings of BP, you'll see them like get a little bit a little bit bigger with the stride and they'll try to juice it. And then you yeah. see them in games and they get a little bit wider and they get into their legs more. So really you have to, you have to have a weight shift and you have to get wide enough yeah. in the stride. And if you do that, you'll get in your legs more. I, I think this next question from a listener, as we wrap up the program here, thank you everybody for putting, you know, for, for listening this week. And of course, uh, um, listening to our variety episode, if you will. Um, but, this question comes to us via Jimbo Podcast 21 at gmail.com, and it comes to us from JJ from Plymouth, Pennsylvania. He says, Jim, this is a question for Jake. So I guess I should just step aside. All right. Uh, Jake, you teach, and I'm talking to you, you teach, quote unquote, dragging the back foot into contact and pinching the knees as opposed to sitting back on the back leg, which hitters like Juan Soto, Alex Bregman, and Bo Bichette do. I don't think Bregman does it, though. Okay, but okay, I'll let you answer. I was wondering what your rationale is for teaching what you do. What do the high-tech gadgets at your facility reveal about how much more force is applied to the ball at contact by dragging the back foot, pinching slash pinching the knees, as opposed to not doing so. Also, wouldn't dragging the back foot create friction, and wouldn't it be better to bring the back foot off the ground a bit into contact? Thanks, JJ from Plymouth, PA. Thank you, JJ, for the question. Very good. Yeah, that's a good question. So it, it all depends on what a player is currently doing. And that's, you know, we'll talk a lot about that this weekend in, in um certification is, you know, if, if I get a player, uh, for instance, today, I had a player, a, a new player come in, young kid, only, uh, I think he was eight or nine years old, mm -hmm. and a pretty good swing, but he held too much weight on his back foot, and he squished the button, right? So his back foot went backwards. 
So that player, I said, hey, I need you to drag your back toes a couple inches to help. Okay. Or I would say, I, I need you to bring pinch your knees together to get him to not squish the bug. Mm -hmm. Vice versa, uh, of an hour after him, a, I had a, a group of young players for our, our you know, regular class and same age, but not a personal lesson. And he's been a member for three or four months. Mm -hmm. And I told him, hey, don't move your back foot. Try to dig your toes into the ground. If you squish the bug, that's fine because he was moving his foot too much. So it all has to do with what players are doing. Now, if you turn on Major League Baseball, nobody's back foot really moves backwards. Like maybe Soto once in a while, maybe uh, Voigt once in a while. Um, he did mention good guys. Bregman's kind of come straight up because he sits down. You know, the more guys sit down, the more weight they have on their back foot. If you have somebody with a big, big stride, their foot's going to drag further. So it kind of depends on on the player. But as far as the the science behind it, um, we we did a test on uh, Kistler ground force plates. Huge, I don't know how many years ago that was, five or six years ago. What's the best stride? Like I shouldn't say what's the best stride. Which one creates the most force? Right? Mm -hmm. Which one creates the most force? So we did. We did a stride uh, so they would step and then they would pivot on their back foot. So they would keep weight on the back foot and not transfer all of it on there. And then we did a stride where they would take a step and they would drag their foot like along the force plate. So what he was talking about with friction, right? So it stayed into the ground more, which means it had a little bit of weight. And then we had one where they would stride and then pick the foot straight up. Mm -hmm. And that one, which you would you know, we thought that one would probably have a, a pretty decent amount of force. It didn't. So you have to have some weight on the back foot right when you go to rotate. Okay. So that's why you want to dig in. It's moving forward because the knee's moving forward. And I guess that's probably the best way to say it is I'm more of a knee guy than I am a foot guy. I do know the foot can't go backwards and the knee pulls the foot. I don't want the foot to necessarily push the knee. Because if the foot does the work, that's when collapsing and that uh, and over rotating or squishing the bug happens. So it's a very fine line. Every player has to be treated, you know, based on what their needs are. But as far as the science is concerned, um, squishing the bug was the worst ground force created, pivoting the back foot back. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and picking it up was the, the one in the middle and then dragging it a little bit forward, you know, two to three inches created the most force. So do that as you will. That's kind of how the science turned out. So it's really, it doesn't really matter. That's what I'm kind of gathering. It doesn't oh, really no, it matter. It matters. You can't squish the bug. So that's oh, the yeah, but it doesn't matter if you drag it or if you just pick it up as long as you're not squishing the bug. Well, you don't want to pick it up all the way too soon. It has to drag and then you could pick it up if you wanted to. So, right. it, or it could come straight up. So the key is you have to de-weight it. So like if you watch Bregman, his foot comes straight up off the ground mm -hmm. and there's a point in his swing where there's no weight on his back foot. Yeah. And 97% of major league players at point of contact do not have any weight on their back foot. They might have weight before they make contact. Like as they begin to rotate and they have weight on it after they make contact, but at point of contact that in the middle of the weight shift, though, you're typically not going to see much on there, except for, like I said, guys like, um, Voight, yeah. sometimes judge, but judge gets his back foot up really high. Um, usually the higher the back foot gets, the higher the heel gets above the toes. 
that means there's less weight on it. But when you see the heel that doesn't get very high off the ground, that usually means there's more weight on it. Well, good stuff this week. Next week, we, you know what next week is? Next week is Halloween. Well, that's this week. This week is Halloween. <laughs> Later in the week. <laughs> and um, no, next week is election week. But there are two days before that. It's a Monday, which means a brand new episode of The Lab will drop. And you know what we're going to be talking about in that? <laughs> your fist pounding, your fist pumping. This is good. Is that, a, is that the Monday before the first Tuesday of the month? That is Monday, November 2nd. That's right. Because the election is always the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. That's right. So it's you no- listen in school, but I did. It's, no- <laughs> it's November 3rd, the election. We probably won't know the president. It's not always November 3rd. Well, this year it is, though. The first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Remember that, kids. Well, we, may, we probably won't know the president, who the president is, until 2022 anyway. So, <laughs> but two days before that. President Nancy. Hmm. I'm sure she'll just take over until all the votes, votes are counted. My apologies to our California listener. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're going to be discussing, it's the four-year anniversary of the Cubs winning the World Series. November 2nd, okay. 2016. Yes. Is it really? It is. 2016 was four years ago. We will be discussing Game 7 of the World Series in 2016 next week. We'll be discussing nice. that game a little bit and some of the things that maybe stuck out offensively, some of the at-bats and whatnot. So I hope your memory, you can jar your memory and you know, along with the prep that we do. Was that the one with, with, with Bartman? Yes. It's going to be a great great episode next week. Great episode, Bartman for president. Was he at the parade, by the way? Do you remember? God, no, he's been in hiding, I think. Poor guy. However, did you see there was a Bartman cutout this year? Yes, I did. I mean, that was just fantastic. My sister said it. My sister, though, she said it perfectly. I I, I agree. I'm tired of the cutouts. I'm, I'm, I'm over that. Yeah, I'm over the cutouts. Bartman 2020, Bartman 24, Bartman 2024. That's what I said. Coming back. Yeah, no, looking forward. That'll be a fun episode. Yeah. We'll be talking about that next week. Game seven of the 2016 World Series. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Any questions, Jimbo Podcast 21 at gmail.com. And we will talk to you next week.